Let's open in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship and learn about you and learn about your work in history again today. We pray you would come and be present. We pray you give us open our hearts, our minds to see your providence, your hand in history. It's a messy, it's a messy, convoluted uh, state of affairs wherever we look. Lord, uh, as we see, as we see men and women bound, bound in sin, and treating one another and treating one another sinfully. Lord God, we pray that in the Lord, let us look for redemption, and where we don't find it, let us labor for it in our own day. Make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about, so good to see you all this morning. We're going to be talking about the second most famous guy named Washington in the United States. Uh, we're going to be talking about Booker T. Washington this morning, and it's been a pleasure to, it's been a pleasure to study, uh, study a little bit about him the past couple of weeks in preparation for this. It's one of the, uh, um, we never, I know you I know you're getting tired of hearing us complain about how short this time is, but one of the real pleasures of doing it is that you ha- is that when you're studying, you don't have time for all the nuance, you don't have the time for all the details. You have to, so you have to go straight to the heart and figure out, okay, who was this man? Who was this woman? What made him or her tick? You're trying to get at the heart. Where, you know, it's, I really feel the pressure to try to get to the heart of the su- of my subject when I get to prepare for these. As a result, it feels very personal. It feels like I've had just a few moments in the presence of some of the people that I've studied. And so I hope, it, I hope to try to convey some of that to you all today. So upon his birth, the man who we, we know today as Booker Taliaferro Washington was known simply as Booker. It would be for about the first 12 years of his life. He was born on a, plant, a large plantation in Hales Ford, Virginia. There's not much in Hales Ford then. There, wa- there, there wasn't much in Hales Ford then. There, wasn't, there isn't much there today. Uh, it was a 200-acre tobacco plantation, like, much like many plantations of the time in southwest Virginia. Um, Booker was born a slave to a slave. His mother's name was Jane. She had, been, she had been raised on this estate. He had no idea who his father was. And to this day, we still don't have no idea who his father was. Best indication is that it was a white man from a nearby plantation. That's it. We don't know anything else about the circumstance. He was raised with, he was raised with his uh, raised with a brother uh, by his mother on the plantation until 1865. Um, before that time, it is um, he was raised raised on raised as a slave on the plantation until 1865. And he writes about this extensively. Most of what I'll be talking about today is drawn from his own words in his, notably fa- in his uh, deservedly famous book, Up From Slavery. It's a small book. It's a very, very easy read. And, I, and as I've done in the past, I highly commend it to your, uh, highly commend it to your study. He, uh, he, he, tells, he knows how to tell a good story. He has a fascinating life to relate. And he draws a lot of principle and instruction from his life experience. He had a very, very difficult life. He had, I mean, you can't start much lower than where he began. And uh, he clambered his way up to exceptional prominence, as we'll see. But it's not the, but he was, he was almost, he's almost sheepish in his relation of some of the honors that were convi- bestowed upon him and given to him later in his life. What he loves to dwell on was the difficulties that he, uh, that he worked through in his early life. He believed they were formative knowledge of who he was, but in giving him an understanding required for the work uh, that he was called to. 
Um, he, it's very interesting, his early chapters, as he talks about slavery, because there is this remarkable tension. On the one hand, he talks about, uh, he talks about the difficulty and the privations endured living in a slave hut on this plantation. They just didn't have much. His mother spoke to him often about freedom, about the war, uh, particularly, you know, as he was, and last, you know, as he was from about six to nine, he and his, you know, he and his mother were living on this out-of-the-way plantation, and they were hearing, they were hearing words uh, through the grapevine about the war, the war between the states that we touched upon last time I talked, I was with you all, and they were, they were living in expectation that one day they might be free. And yet at the same time, they were steadfastly committed to their masters and their master and mistress on the plantation, and they were absolutely devoted to those that they were enslaved to. And he says that in his own experience, this was common throughout the South at this period. Uh, there, was a, there was a great responsibility felt, felt particularly by the male slaves of the plantation that they needed to look after, look after their uh, young mistress or old mistress. They were, usually one of them would sleep in the big house. That was, it was called the main, the main plantation house. And it was, it was committed that if, if any, any harm was going to come to the ladies of the house, it was going to be over the slave's dead body. That's how committed they were. And yet, and so on the one hand, there was, there was a remarkably free Booker himself, and by his own admission, his family, many he knew, they were remarkably free of resentment for their, for their lot, and yet they still yearned for liberty, which came with emancipation, with the final accomplishment of emancipation in 1865. And at that point, their, their masters uh, called all the slaves plantation out and said, you, you're free. And there was rejoicing, there was singing, and then there was, everyone looked around and said, oh, what do we do now? And that, was, that would become a theme of uh, Washington's life throughout the rest of it. So, shortly after emancipation in 1865, um, Jane, Jane married um, and a man with the last name of Washington. That's, and um, and uh, uh, at that point, the, the, the boy, simply known as Booker, uh, didn't take his, his stepfather's name immediately, not until he was in school in Malden, West Virginia. And he began to watch as the other students were introduced, they all gave two names. And he, suddenly, he started scratching his head, figured he needed another one, and grabbed his stepfather's name basically just off, off the cuff, just to have something to put on the paperwork. Um, he, he had a thirst for knowledge from a very, very young age. And this is a time when it would have been very, this is a time when um, formal schooling for people with dark skin was a very, very rare thing and very, very hard to come by. There was a, there was a, there was a, there were a lot of schools being founded for emancipated slaves throughout the South at this time, uh, but they were still relatively new. And they, uh, they weren't always well run. They were often finding any man or woman who could just, who, who had just enough, just a little more information than their students to, be, to teach. Um, and there was, also, there was also a lot of pressure for every member of the family to be working and bringing in income. Um, so Washington spent a lot of time, uh, spent a lot of time working in the coal mines in the Kanawha Valley of uh, central West Virginia. And he would work all day in the coal mines and then he'd go to night school. And he was basically, and he was trying to cram in as much knowledge into his young life as he possibly could. He, um, So he was so he was basically juggling he was basically juggling uh, basically juggling his studies and his work until about 1872 when he heard about the Hampton the Hampton Institute in Hampton Virginia 
This is what was called a normal school, uh, which simply meant a school that trained people to become teachers. And he, uh, he, decided, that he, was, he decided that he wanted to go and become a student there. Uh, I wish we had time to go through that journey. He was going from Malden, West Virginia, to Hampton, Virginia, Northern Virginia. It's about 500 miles, and he accomplished most of it on foot. Uh, he, would basically, he basically took what little money he had at that time, because all of his money was, all the money he made at the coal mine was either going to support his mother and father and their household, or else it was going into what, you know, going into night school, uh, paying for night school. So he had very little, but he decided he would stri strike out. So with little more than a few dollars in his pocket and clothes on his back, he started walking. Uh, it was, he, he took stages, stagecoaches and trains when he could. It was expensive and hard. It was not easy for a black man at the time to get on these things. Um, so he ended, up, uh, he ended up on his way there in Richmond, Virginia. And he had no money. He knew no one in the city. He had nowhere to go. He ended up sleeping under a boardwalk in a portion of the city. And he remembered laying there listening. And he looks back and remembers laying under that listening to the traffic going, uh, going over top. He was hungry, he was desperate, um, he, had, he had nothing and nobody at that point. Uh, he's not, and it's remarkable when he relates this, that he, does not, he, he doesn't resent this, he believes it was critical um, becoming the man that he was. It was at that point that he went out and found a job in Richmond, ended up working, staying for several, uh, several weeks in Richmond just working and getting enough money to continue his, continue his travels on to the Hampson Institute. One of his, let me see here, I bookmarked the selection. He finally arrives in Hampton, Virginia, and he does. And by his own admission, he didn't. Uh, he didn't look like a very promising candidate for higher education at this point. He was unwashed. He was hungry. He was haggard. He had the dust of the road, months of the dust of the road, ingrained into his clothing. So he shows up at the headmistress, and she, Mrs. Ruffner, and she. Um, yeah, she didn't want to admit him. But he was persistent. He stuck around and kept asking. And so she finally, uh, so she finally said, uh, the headmistress finally said to me, the adjoining recitation room needs sweeping. Take the broom and sweep it. It occurred to me at once that here was my chance. Never did I receive an order with more delight. I knew that I could sweep, for Mrs. Ruffner had been thoroughly taught, sorry, Mrs. Ruffner was a mentor of his back in Malden. Um, so this is Miss Mary Mackey who he's trying to impress to get into the Hampton Institute. I knew that I could sweep, for Mrs. Ruffner had thoroughly taught me how to do that when I lived with her. I swept the recitation room three times. Then I got a dusting cloth, and I dusted it four times. All the woodwork around the walls, every bench, table, and desk, I went over four times with my dusting cloth. Besides, every piece of furniture had been moved, and every closet and corner in the room had been thoroughly cleaned. I had the feeling that, upon, that in a large measure, my future depended upon the impression I made, upon the teacher in the cleaning of that room. When I was through, I reported the head teacher. She was a <clears throat> Yankee woman who knew just where to look for dirt. She went into the room and inspected the floor and closets. Then she took her handkerchief and rubbed it on the woodwork about the walls and over the table and benches. When she was unable to find one bit of dirt on the floor or a particle of dust in any of the furniture, she quietly remarked, I guess you will do to enter this institution. That was his admission exam, that was his admission exam into the Hampton Institute. Now, at this point, I wish I could say that the rest of his life was easy and smooth sailing, but it was not. Uh, you see a remarkable, you see, in his, you see in his struggles for knowledge and for financial support 
the struggles that he would, that he would face on behalf of the institution Tuskegee when he would be called there. Uh, the Lord seemed to be training him up for, you know, for hard work and for reliance, uh, for reliance here in an early age. It was at the Hampton Institute, where, so his, his life at the Hampton Institute was much like his journey to get there, unfortunately. He had to pay for it. The, the Institute helped him out by hiring him as a janitor, so he was working as a janitor to basically pay for room and board, but he still had to pay for his books and for his instruction. So he was working jobs on the side and basically, you know, basically working full-time and studying full-time and burning the candle at, you know, at every possible end. He did, however, come under the mentorship of a man named Samuel Armstrong, General Samuel Armstrong. Armstrong was a general, Armstrong was a, uh, Armstrong had commanded black troops in the Union Army during the war between the states. However, he was the son of Presbyterian missionaries to Hawaii. He was actually born in Oahu uh, and, grew up in Oahu, and grew up there on the islands as a young boy. Um, he was remarkable. He was exceptionally devout and selfless in his labor for establishing, um, establishing schools like the Hampton Institute to try to give, uh, to try to give free, recently freed slaves the tools they needed for, for, free, for, life, uh, for life that they were leading on their own. Washington is profuse in his praise for Armstrong, and Armstrong would be a mentor to him t- and to the end of his life. Uh, at the end of his life, Armstrong, uh, Armstrong was dying. He had lost, he was nearly paralyzed and had lost the use of his limbs, but wanted to see the Tuskegee Institute one last time and would travel there in his wheelchair. Um, he, was, he, he was an advisor to Washington toward the, to the end of his life. Um, uh, it's worth... Washington, uh, Washington writes of him, I'll, this is one of the briefest things he says, I have spoken the impression that was made upon me by the building and general appearance of the Hampton Institute, but I have not spoken of that which made the greatest and most lasting impression upon me, and that was a great man, the noblest, rarest human being that has ever, it has ever been my privilege to meet. I refer to the late General Samuel C. Armstrong. So, Washington is, uh, Washington completes his studies at the Hampton Institute. He goes on to um, Wayland Seminary, what was known as Wayland Seminary at the, uh, uh, in Washington, D.C. afterwards, and then returns to the Hampton Institute and, is, and joins the faculty there as an instructor. And then in 1881, a commission of the Alabama legislature writes to General Armstrong. They're looking for a man to lead a new school in Tuskegee, Alabama, a new, uh, no, a new normal and industrial school there. And they say, uh, they, ask, they ask Armstrong to recommend a man to them. Uh, they basically say, we need, a, we need a smart white guy. Send us a smart white guy. Armstrong reads letters like, just the man for this job. So he calls Washington into his office and, and tells, him, uh, tells him that he wants to, uh, tells him he wants to send him there. And the rest, as they say, is history. Washington would be forever associated with Tuskegee, Alabama from that point onward with his labors there. Um, I want to, um, Washington does not sugarcoat his life up to this point, however, in his book. Uh, there, some of the, one of the more instructive, uh, one of the more instructive uh, passages I read here on the, just the arbitrary nature of prejudice throughout the country at this time was, uh, he, wrote, he writes about during his time at Hampton Institute. He was given care for a group of Indian stu- American Indian students who were also admitted to the school. And he writes, when I was in charge of the Indian boys at Hampton, I had one or two experiences which illustrate the curious workings of caste in America. We don't, 
I often hear that word used, applied to American experiences. But I thought it was really interesting. One of the Indian boys was taken ill, and it became my duty to take him to Washington, deliver him over to the Secretary of the Interior, and get a receipt for him in order that he might be returned to his Western Reservation. At that time, I was rather ignorant of the ways of the world. During my journey to Washington on a steamboat, when the bell rang for dinner, I was careful to wait and not enter the dining room until after the greater part of the passengers had finished their meal. Then, with my charge, I went to the dining saloon. The man in charge politely informed me that the Indian could be served, but that I could not. I never could understand how he knew just where to draw the color line, since the Indian and I were of about the same complexion. The steward, however, seemed to be an expert in this matter. <laughs> I had been directed by the authorities at Hampton to stop at a certain hotel in Washington with my charge, but when I went to this hotel, the clerk stated that he, could, that he would be glad to receive the Indian into the house, but said that he could not accommodate me. An illustration of something of the same feeling came under my observation afterward. I happened to find myself in a town in which so much excitement and indignation were being expressed that it seemed likely for a time that there would be a lynching. The occasion of the trouble was that a dark-skinned man had stopped at the local hotel. Investigation, however, developed the fact that this individual was a citizen of Morocco, and that while traveling the country, he spoke the English language. As soon as it was learned that he was not an American Negro, all the signs of indignation disappeared. The man was the innocent cause of the excitement, though, found it prudent after that not to speak English. I've been thinking about this all week, and I still don't know what to say about this. Um, it, is, it is like, it's beyond, I mean, we, we tend to think of race prejudice in America simply being a matter of skin color. But now it's simply, these people would take no offense to the darkness of skin color as long as they knew he wasn't from around there. As, long as, they, as soon as they knew he was a foreigner, he was okay. And this was the opposition that, uh, this is some of the, some of the prejudice and difficulty that Washington so encountered. So we're just coming up on, so this would be in the late 1870s, 1878, yeah, during his studies there. Because it was in 1881 that, he, uh, that, he, that General Armstrong first sent him to Tuskegee, Alabama. Now, uh, Hampton Institute was a beautiful institution when Washington studied there. So he was expecting something of the same kind when he got to Tuskegee. What he found was a shack, a couple of shacks, and a chicken coop. And that, that had been donated to the cause. There was absolutely, there was absolutely nothing, nothing there. That, working with absolutely nothing had become a way of life for Washington by this point, so that did not discourage him at all. He had, because the thing he had was 30 students who were hungry to learn as he was. And this is where his, his experience training recent, you know, uh, the children of freedmen and, recently, and the children of recently emancipated slaves is absolutely fascinating. Because what you find, it, because what we see in Washington is a man who was exceptionally gifted, exceptionally intelligent. He was, he was renowned in his day as one of the great, he's renowned to this day as one of the greatest orators that the nation has ever produced. He's a fantastic public speaker. He gives a lot of credit to his abilities in communication by his, reading, his regular reading of scripture. He, uh, he claims he learned much of much of his ability of rhetoric just reading the Bible regularly. However, he was, literally, he was not afraid to get his hands dirty. Uh, you know, that moment of him sweeping that classroom to get, get himself into school is one of, the proud, is one of his proudest accomplishments. Um, and this was something that he, this, and this dignity of all work was at the heart of, uh, heart of his, both his message and part of thousands of people and his one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one instruction for his students. He said, learn, 
grow, study, so that you can work, so that you can be useful to yourself, to your families, to your neighbors, to the South that you live in. And this would become, this would become his, you know, this would probably become the basis of most of his, you know, most of his teaching, and it would become one of the most controversial things about him as well. We'll get to that here in a minute. So he had absolutely nothing. He, it was Tuskegee, Alabama. It was sweltering hot. Um, and he has 30 eager students and absolutely no facilities. So he says, we're going to build them. He goes on for pages in his book talking about their struggles trying to create a brick kiln uh, so that they could actually fire and build their own bricks for construction on this facility. And they, they went through, they made four or five attempts and they just kept getting it wrong. The bricks would come out and they'd fall apart immediately. The kiln would, fall, would burst apart. And every time he's just like, well, that's not how it works. Let's try again. Over and over and over again. And so they end up, uh, they end up, so they end up building. So on the one hand, he's, he's teaching students to basically do, replicate his early life. They're working, they're working and, and sweating and building the buildings and the, and the stools and the tables so that at a point when they're actually studying everything in front of them, everything around them, they've built with their own hands. And, you know, at the same time, he's working with contacts in the no throughout both the South and the North, getting financial, trying to raise financial support for this as well. He's trying, because once again, his students, just like himself, are coming to this school with absolutely nothing, uh, knowing absolutely nothing. He, you know, they need books, they need paper, they need pens, they need money, they need money for room and board. Uh, they're sleeping in tents out in the front yard in many cases. And so he's, he's basically, he's raised support uh, to try to keep this fledgling institution going. Let me see, I had a selection here I wanted to read about this. <laughs> well, uh, just some of the chapter names in this section. Teaching school in a stable in a hen house. Tells you a lot. Yeah, his chapters here are basically, they talk about building buildings, they talk about making beds, raising money. Uh, it's a very, very long, it's a very, very long haul. Here we go. When I first came to, to Tuskegee, I determined that I would make it my home, that I would take as much pride in the right actions of the people of the town as any white man could do, and that I would, at the same time, deplore the wrongdoing of the people as much as any white man. I determined never to say anything in a public address in the North that I would not be willing to say in the South. I early learned that it is a hard matter to convert an individual by abusing him, and that this is more often accomplished by giving credit for all the praiseworthy actions performed than by calling attention alone to all the evil done. Hmm. While pursuing this policy, I have not failed at the proper time and in the proper manner to call attention in no uncertain terms to the wrongs which any part of the South has been guilty of. I have found that there is a large element in the South that is quick to respond to straightforward, honest criticism of any wrong policy. As a, result, as a rule, the place to criticize the South when criticism is necessary is in the South, not in Boston. A Boston man who came to Alabama to criticize Boston would not affect so much good, I think, as one who had his word criticism to say in Boston. He began to be, um, he was speaking almost, he was basically in Tuskegee teaching and building buildings, and then he was on the road almost constantly from this point forward throughout the rest of his life, speaking to try to raise money and get support for the school. 
Um, he was continually, you know, so he was continually in, you know, so he was basically in the fields of Alabama or in the drawing rooms of Boston and New England. And he was, and so, but he was, so he lived this double life and he was always aware of it. One of the biggest struggles he had was that the expectations for a lot of students, um, the expectations a lot of students had coming into the school was that now that they were free, they were free from work and they wouldn't have to do anything anymore. They felt that if, and they felt that if uh, the emancipation hadn't accomplished that all by itself and that getting a good education would, it would remove the need for hard labor. No college student believes this anymore, thankfully, um, but many, it's the expectation many that many brought to his school. There was a desire for, there was a desire for books, and it wasn't just, they didn't want to just understand the books, they just wanted to have books, and the thicker and the, long, the thicker the book and the longer the title on the front, the better his students like to have them. I have met young reform men who have the absolute same view on building libraries. They don't care what's inside them, they just want people to know they have all the right authors on their shelves. Uh, I have been that man myself. And he would have, and so he was continually fighting battles with parents who were like, what do you mean you're making my son, my daughter, make beds, you know, work in the kitchen, work in a brick kiln? We were working, exactly. There was, uh, there was, um, there was a strong, <laughs> there was a strong assumption at the time that work was beneath the dignity of the freedman at this time. And he said, no, it is not. He said, there is honor and dignity in all work. And so while, so while we're going to be developing your minds, we're going to be working your bodies hard as well. Because now you're working for yourself. And that's what man, and that's what men and women are called to do. He was, very, very, he was very, very concerned for a new class of, of young men and young women at the time who was more interested in, in grabbing whatever money they could get quickly, buying fine clothes, going to the theater, enjoying many of the benefits now open to them through freedom, and going no further. He was, he was basically he was worried about, he was worried about his, a new generation turning into dandies and bops and living in laziness and idleness. And he didn't want to see this. This, this, is hard for, this is hard for me to read, this is hard for me to say, because these were, these, if, these, if these weren't actual slaves themselves, many of them were, these were the children of slaves whose parents' life was defined by nothing but drudgery and labor from morning to night for generations before. So it seems like a cruel irony to have this black man come down, start a school, and say, okay, now you've got to work even harder. Because now you have to do all that, and you've got to study on top of it. But what I love, but, you know, but then I was convicted because I'm lazy and I want to put on a good show and I want to find definition, I, I want my life to be found not by the work that I do but by the way people see me. Um, his, instruction, his instruction was equally applicable to pretty much, you know, to white, uh, white men and women in the South at this time as well. Because this, because the whole, I mean the whole social, you know, Washington you know, Washington, was, Washington, when he was nine years old and emancipated from his, uh, from his plantation, this was a new era. This was a social revolution, almost, you know, al as great as, if not greater than, you know, the War for Independence just a few years, you know, just a few decades before. And he was standing on top of a new world. And it was a world defined by, it was, it was a culture that had been defined by slavery not just as slaves, but the slave owners themselves. Because slave owners themselves had much the same outlook as the slaves did immediately after. Slave, you know, the slave owners, those on the large plantations, viewed that work was beneath them. 
and that they needed to have everything done for them. And now here there are their slaves acting the same way as soon as they come out. You know, sin, sin is no respecter of persons. Sin will convince the highest and the lowest of their own self-importance any chance to get. And so he was, and so Washington had to work very hard <laughs> to teach humility and diligence to a lot of his students. And it was this subject that was preeminent in his mind when in 1895 he was invited to, um, he was invited to Atlanta to speak at the Atlanta Exposition. And this was the speech that would, this was probably the, this was probably the high watermark of Washington's public career and also the event that has turned, uh, that has made him, uh, made him controversial to this day. He, he records the, um, we're doing on time. Ah, it's 10 o'clock, great. Um, he records a speech in its entirety here. It only lasted about, it was less than 10 minutes. So let me read a brief discussion. So these themes were much on his mind as he gave this address. This would have been before many th several thousand people uh, from all over the country had come to see kind of the agriculture and industrial, industrial accomplishments of the South. They had a whole exhibit dedicated to uh, the labors of free, you know, recently freed slaves in the, in the South as well. And so he was speaking before a mixed audience. Uh, you had some of that. You had, you had recently freed slaves all the way up, you know, all the way up to many of the white uh, white power brokers in the South at this time. So he was speaking to both. Um, this is just a brief section of the speech. I recommend, I recommend it all uh, because it has, been, uh, it has been hotly contested and discussed uh, um, throughout history since. He says, to those of the white race who look to the incoming of those of foreign birth and strange tongue and habits for my, the prosperity of the South, were I permitted, I would repeat what I say to my own race. Cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down among the eight millions of Negroes whose habits you know, whose fidelity and love you have tested in days when to have proven treacherous meant the ruin of your fire signs. Cast down your bucket among these people who have, without strikes and labor wars, tilled your fields, cleared your forests, built, built your railroads and cities, and brought forth treasures from the bowels of the earth, and helped make possible this magnificent representation of the progress of the South. Cast down your bucket among my people, help and encourage them as you are doing on these grounds, and to, ed and to education of head, hand, and heart, you will find that they will buy your surplus land, make blossom the waste places in your fields, and run your factories. While doing this, you can be sure in the future, as in the past, that you and your families will be surrounded by the most patient, faithful, law-abiding, and unresentful people that the world has seen. As we have proved our loyalty to you in the past, in nursing your children, watching by the sickbed of your mothers and fathers, and often following them with tear-dimmed eyes to their graves, so in the future, in our humble way, we shall stand by you with a devotion that no foreigner can approach, ready to lay down our lives if need be in defense of yours, interlacing our industrial, commercial, civil, and religious life with yours in a way that shall make the interests of both races one. Now listen to this, because <laughs> this, is, this is where he really kicks the hornet's nest. In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one is the hand in which in all things essential to mutual progress. Does that sound familiar to anyone? separate but equal, segregation, and that was, uh, as he brings to, as he brings his speech to an end, he says, the wisest among my race understand that the agitation of questions of social equality is the extremist folly. 
and that progress in the enjoyment of all the privileges that will come to us must be the result of severe and constant struggle <coughs> rather than of artificial forcing. No race that has anything to contribute to the markets of the world is long in any degree ostracized. It is important and right that all privileges of law be ours, but it is vastly more important that we be prepared for the exercises of these privileges. The opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more than the opportunity to spend a dollar in an opera house. At the time he gave this, in 1895, uh, his friend and colleague, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, wrote high praise of it. Uh, Washington received standing ovation for this speech. He gave it several times at other places, recorded it, uh, was, you know, was lauded and praised throughout the, co the country for it. Later on in 1903, Du Bois, who, was, who had then become, you know, had then helped found the, uh, the NAACP, uh, became, his mindset changed and he became a harsh critic of Washington and the, the principles he laid out in his speech. And Du Bois's, uh, du Bois's criticism has ultimately, has ultimately remained to this day, pretty much, and shades how we view Washington's life and work in light of the Civil Rights Movement of the 50s and 60s. Du Bois would write, the South ought to be led by candid, and honest, by candid and honest criticism to assert her better self and do her full duty to the race she has cruelly wronged and is still wronging. The North, her co-partner in guilt, cannot salve her conscience by plastering it with gold. We cannot settle this problem by diplomacy and suaveness, by policy alone. If worse comes to worse, can the moral fiber of this country survive the slow throttling and murder of nine millions of men? He goes on to say, but so far as Mr. Washington apologizes for injustice, North or South, does not rightly value the privilege and duty of voting, belittles the emasculating effects of caste distinctions, and opposes the higher train ambition of our brighter minds. So far as he, the South, or the nation does this, we must unceasingly and firmly oppose them. By every civilized and peaceful method, we must strive for the rights which the world accords to men, clinging unwaveringly to these great, those great words which the sons of the fathers would fain forget. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Du Bois's words are, uh, are candid, honest, and well thought out. And, and they're, uh, they're an ominous, and in light of history, they, they, uh, they kind of codify an ominous critique of uh, where Washington's thoughts seem to be going at this time. I wish I had more than 10 minutes right now. I've got so much to say. <laughs> um, Washington is accused to this day of, of belittling, his own, uh, belittling his own race, belittling his fellow free slaves, and basically trying to move them back into practical servitude as nothing more than industrial and agricultural labor in the South. Uh, he is viewed as one of the instigators of segregation and all of legal, all of the social and legal persecution that resulted from that. Um, and, you know, I'd love to explore the nuance of this because I believe Washington is open to critique, but I don't believe he's, I don't believe he's, I don't believe he deserves, um, I don't believe he deserves all of it. Because there are, there are two sides, because Washington was, he was a cagey man, and there were two sides to him. On the front facing, he was, he, on the front, on, publicly, and in private address, he, wa he was laboring for reconciliation, for collaboration, for cooperation, black and white, free and, you know, uh, free and former slave together, the future of the South. 
But there was the other side of his work that, it, that was not well known until well into the 1950s, and that was he ran a very sophisticated political machine behind the scenes, laboring against, uh, laboring against prejudice, against the, uh, the growing race laws uh, throughout the South and the North both. He was, uh, he began, he, he privately funded and instigated many, uh, many court cases and legal challenges to segregation laws, to the, um, to the suppression of bl uh, the black vote in the South, and he was laboring throughout this. There's a wonderful, uh, there's, there's a wonderful study in, from the Journal of Southern History, written in 1950, when was it? August Meyer wrote in the Journal of Southern History in May 1957, and he, he basically collected up all of Washington's letters and letters and correspondence, and found they the, found it the mind of a sophisticated political operator, in effect behind all uh, behind that of the of the educator and the orator. So on the one hand, he was preaching diligence and labor and preparation. He was also at the same time trying to trying to smooth the field politically, uh, for the form, for former slaves to be able to do that. As studying this, I was reminded of Galatians chapter 3, in which Paul writes, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. The legacy of the um, struggles over liberty and race reconciliation in the country have, uh, have been going on for a very long time. And we are now seeing, we are now seeing the, uh, the transfer of that fight into pure political agitation, as Washington would have called it. And Washington would have been critical of this because he would have seen in it the pure, he would have seen reconciliation purely through external force. Court cases and legislation and, um, you know, and, you know, basically forcing your will upon large groups of people. This would have been his critique. And while I think there is, and while there is a place for, while there, I believe there, there was a place for civil disobedience and for Legal battles, civil rights. I think we, I think we would do wrong to miss. I think we would be wrong to miss uh, Washington's instruction in favor of Du Bois. I think the contrast between these two men needs to be. I think we as Christians need to study the contrast between these two men uh, a little more. Because uh, Du Bois, while he was arguing for equal, equal rights, equal situations immediately, he was not doing it from a perspective of Christian reconciliation. He was doing it as a Marxist. And that has, been, that has been the Achilles heel of the civil rights movement from the get-go. Even, even good Christian men like Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King would fall, into, would fall into the trap of egalitarianism and Marxism uh, in their careers. And that's, you know, that's, uh, it has hounded the steps of freedom um, for black and white men and women in this country for a very long time. I would, we as Christ people, we need to take these words very seriously because Paul was writing in Galatians to a, to a people divided by a segregation far more powerful than anything this, this, you know, the, this country has ever seen. 
God himself set a divide between his people and the rest of the world in the Old Testament. And so now when his apostles are writing in Galatians and in large portions of Romans and saying that time is over, the whole world is mine now, every man, woman, and child in it, black and white, Jew and Greek, free and slave is mine. That is, you know, that is earth shattering. And I do not want to go the, I do not want to go the direction, of, I'm, not, I'm not preaching the new perspective of Paul to you this morning. I'm saying that as profound as, preju- as profoundly difficult as prejudice, uh, as prejudice and hatred are to overcome, the gospel accomplishes it almost as an afterthought. As, uh, as, it's almost as if when Paul is teaching justification by faith and the, redemption, and the redemptive restoration of man to God, he says, and oh, by the way, let's, this, is tearing down the, this is tearing down the artificial distinctions that we've set up between men along the way. Let's be reconciled to Christ. Now that is... Now, critics will say that is oversimplified, and that will, you know, and how do you put meat on the bones of that? I would say, yes, we need to wrestle with that. But, you know, maybe it just begins with talking to, you know, but maybe begin, but you, we, have, we have the blessed opportunity to have a very, a lot of different people living with us here in Spartanburg County. So maybe it just begins with us as Christians talking to the cashier or our fellow shoppers at the store whose skin color is, a different, is lighter or darker than ours, and just saying, hey, hey, do you know Jesus? And if they don't, invite the church. And if they do, then talk about the Savior we both love. And just make that part of our conversation in our lives going forward. And then let us, and let us recognize that we work and live alongside all those who bear the image of God. We've got just a few minutes. Any questions or comments? Uh, this has been a lot, so I appreciate y'all's patience this morning. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah, depends where you were from. Yep. Yes, he was invited to. He was invited to the White House for uh, he and his wife with uh, for dinner with the, the Roosevelts in the White House. It was wildly contentious when it happened. There, um, I was tempted to talk about this, but had had to in the interest of time, but yeah, that did happen, uh, and it was, oh, where was it, yeah, he was there, um, he was, and this, and this was actually part, I mean, this looks like a publicity stunt, this is probably likely to be a publicity stunt on behalf of the White House and the Roosevelt administration, but this was calculated policy on Washington's part. Because he uh, he ended up being a regular a regular advisor to President Roosevelt and then President and to a lesser extent President Taft after him, as well as let's see who was it before who was it before Roosevelt Cleveland yeah he was a regular he was a regular counselor to a lot of American presidents he certainly did. Yeah, Andrew. I may have missed this and you mentioned it, but what is at stake? So I've been wrestling with that. I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> I, as you, I'm still smarting from my investigation to Abigail Adams. My disappointment finds she was not a Christian. So I've been, I'm getting kind of jaded, and I, just, I really just want to find, find out where are all the sincere Christians in American history. Um, 
Washington's faith is disputed. Um, I have seen I have seen I have seen historians go both ways on that. Uh, I lean toward him being a Christian, but I also have to admit that the name of Christ did not come up a lot in his writings, except when he would describe the conduct of others as Christ-like. He was profoundly influenced by the scriptures, as were many. Um, so I can confidently put him in the category of those who have been uh, shaped by, the, by Christianity in the United States. Uh, I, think he was, I think he was a believer, but I'm not sure. It's a great question. Yeah. I think every major I think every major struggle the United States faces today, you can find it in our past. No, he ha- he taught he, he taught self-reliance and diligence, that is sorely lost today. But we, that's not enough. We need reliance on Christ on top of that. Yeah, yeah, Mike. What was his relationship to uh, George Washington Carver? George Washington Carver. Oh man, I wish we could talk about George Washington Carver. Um, what, um, the short answer is that he and Carver were close friends, and at the end, and that Carver became a faculty member at. Tuskegee Institute. Uh, after you know, after an independent career as a scientist, he came to teach at uh, Tuskegee. Uh, that was shortly before Washington. I believe that was shortly before Washington's death in 1915. Um, so, but they were two men were very very close. Yes, yeah, it's Tuskegee University today, uh, but remains in Tuskegee, Alabama. It's it is uh, it's now an um, it is now a state university of, of Alabama. It's, known, it's what's known as a historically black school, um, but it is there. Uh, Washington is buried on its grounds, and, that, and, uh, and his influence is seen everywhere. We didn't get a chance to talk about his wives. He was married three times. 
Um, his first two wives both died uh, very early. They were both passionate supporters of the school alongside him. Uh, and then his third wife, his third wife served, uh, served along with him and actually ended up traveling with him to Europe. And it's worth, it's worth mentioning that this man who, as a boy, had, had the single name and lived in a, a one-room hut, in his later life, he and his wife would be entertained by Queen Victoria uh, and many, many of the most prominent people in Europe. As a matter of fact, he, at the end of his life, at the end of Up From Slavery, he writes an account where he's been invited uh, by the citizens of Richmond to come and speak to the city only a few blocks away from that boardwalk that he slept under on his making his way to Hampton Institute. And he admitted that he was distracted that night, not by the finery and the, the glowing lights of the, event, of the fancy event he'd been invited to, but the thought of that boardwalk uh, shortly under, uh, where he'd slept under, was kind of haunting him that day. And it's just amazing to see the, the trajectory the Lord took him through life. Anything else? Great questions. Well, let's pray. Lord God, we, you have saved us by grace through faith, unto, uh, and you've laid for our feet good works that we may walk in them. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of this man who was not afraid of hard work from his, uh, at any point in his life, but Lord, made it a way of life. And through that, we, can, uh, we are instructed today. For Lord, we are lazy and we are entitled and we think far more highly of ourselves than we ought. Lord, we need the instruction. Lord, we need the instruction that we receive today. Lord God, I pray that you would make us free, uh, Lord, make us free of prejudice and uh, make us free of, Lord, make us free of ingratitude in equal measure. Lord, let us use what we have and been given to bless and encourage and to serve others. But let us do it for the sake of our Lord and Savior who, did every, who gave everything for us. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.